Yeah, it's weird. I never think of crawfish boils as being a summer thing, although I can't... Well, they definitely are. I mean, I know they are, but I... Because I can never... I can't picture them outside any other time other than summer. But when I think summer, I never think, like, crawfish. But I'm telling you, the crawfish boil that I went to yesterday was so much fun. I have not had crawfish in like 10 years, except for one bowl of crawfish etouffee I had like four years ago, but it was in Oklahoma, so you can imagine how it was. <laughs> yeah, um, the picture you sent me of the table with like all the sausage and potatoes and like everything that comes with the boil. Oh yeah, I'm definitely like so proud of that because first off, it looks like a restaurant photo. It Just really saying. does. It really does. <laughs> Shout out to the Pixel 3 camera. <laughs> um but now it was so good. And then after the crawfish boil, we went to the Marin Morris concert. It is the perfect time of year for an outdoor concert. Yes. Because in like three weeks, it's going to be 65,000 degrees outside. That and is horrible. True. It's about but to be a lot hotter than it is now. It was wonderful. Although we were standing next to this girl who she may have been like in her early 20s. She definitely looked like she was 16 and she was vaping to the point where she looked like she was trying to compete with the smoke machines. Oh my God. And it was just all blowing in our faces. That's annoying. And I'm like, mmm, toasted marshmallow concert. Gross. (laughs) Um, Well, hey everyone, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And it's also uh, Easter, with the day we're recording. So happy it Easter, is. late Easter. Yeah, for happy y'all Easter to if this. you um, <laughs> if you celebrate Easter. Happy Easter if you don't. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. <laughs> you have a day off, and I'm feeling it. Like, I did not realize how big of a deal Good Friday was, though, because we grew up like. I don't even think we had Good Friday off of school. No, Or if we did, not. it would be one of those, like, oh, if you didn't use a snow day, you might have it off or something like that. I don't think so. But yeah, I don't think so. But here, I mean, on Friday, probably half the office was gone because mm, they were traveling to, like, go see family and stuff like that. And I'm like, huh. No, yeah, I cool. literally, I drove to work on Friday and I got in the parking garage and it was basically empty and my first thought was oh my god is it saturday did i accidentally come to work on a saturday could i have slept in (laughs) but no it was good friday and so it was just like very empty yeah we got to the parking garage and we found a spot on like floor seven which never happens usually park on 10 or 11 Uh, but i was like oh my god yeah it's a 14 floor parking garage do you spend like 20 minutes getting out of the parking garage yes every single (laughs) oh my god And usually there's not, like, there's not a line of cars ever. Right. But just going Just the time it takes around. to go around. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that it's a solid, like, seven minutes of my commute is getting out of the building. Yep. Because also, if I'm in a parking garage, especially inside a building, I drive like a grandma. Well, as you should. Because I'm like, hmm, I could go slow and, like, ugh, I'll get to home 30 seconds later. Or I could... Drive fast and accidentally murder someone and go to jail. Or, so, or try to turn know. the corner too fast and, like, hit your car on the concrete, like, pillar. I mean, that too. I'm always just scared of hitting someone more. But to me, like, whatever amount of time I could save is just not worth it. It's true. It's how I feel when, I, when people pass me on the highway and they're going, like, 95. I'm like, is it worth it? Because also, if you get pulled over, 
you're going to lose all that time you gained. That's true. That's true. And it's probably going to eventually take you even longer. Don't murder people with your cars, people. Don't do it. Well, hey, don't forget about Patreon. You can hop on there, become a Patreon supporter, and we've got a lot of murder mini episodes. You can pick episode content. We'll send you a handwritten note. What else do we do? Oh, the stickers the stickers um you get an exclusive sticker in one of our tiers but definitely check it out because those episodes are getting longer and longer the more that we're doing them and i swear half of them could absolutely be full episodes but tyler and i just can't hold it in and we have to do it (laughs) there's a good chunk of them now that i'm like no if we just spent the extra 10 20 minutes talking about like wine and current news and updates stuff it's the case length is the same yeah it would just be a full episode and i'm like "Hmm, there y'all go there's y'all's extra content no absolutely free episodes be sure to check out our murder minis they'll always be called they're just not murder minis anymore they'll always be called murder minis but they're they're just podcast episodes they're less and less many Also, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, all the things. Google Play. Um, You know, once you're subscribed, you can, like, automatically download the episodes. They're right there at your disposal as soon as they come out. And it's super easy. You never have to go searching for them. So do it. So, yeah, I think this is going to be a really exciting episode, and I know I've got Mm -hmm. a pretty hefty case that I picked. Oh, me too. (laughs) So, um, I'm actually going to jump into the topic, because this this week I actually got to pick our topic, and there are a a lot of... Finally. (laughs) Finally, I know. (laughs) You finally won. I feel like I've picked the last, like, three or four. I feel like you have to. You just need to, like, stop picking the um, more brutal cases, or I'm going to pull out the big guns. What are the big guns? Ones like Georgia Cruz. Yeah, that, that like, was a bad stick one. with you for days. Yeah. And by days, I mean it's been almost a year since I did that episode, and, and I still think about it very often, so. Yep, it's true. Well, <sighs> so. Please don't make me do that. You know how you and I normally pick a lot more recent cases. It's not very mm-hmm. often that we go back in time, but when you look back, there are some really, really crazy cases that have happened. So for this mm-hmm. week, the topic I picked is vintage murders, which is extremely broad. There are just so many things that happened. And yes, it's an extremely broad mm-hmm. topic, but I know when I picked it, I definitely had one in mind. And um, Yeah, I know. Me too. When you told me <laughs> the topic, I was like, oh, I want to do this case. Turns out that's the one Brittany's doing, so yes, fine. So this is one of the first times that we have both picked the same case, which is exactly why we do our thing where it's like, oh, my case is in this state. Like, we, again, keep it very broad. But and I texted Brittany and I was like, oh, perfect. Mine's in this city. Like, one second later, I was like, oh, never mind. That city's in that state. You're, that's what you're doing. Okay. I'll pick a different one. Yep, absolutely. And I was like, nope, sorry, I told you yesterday. Because, like, the second I decided to do it is when I texted you and I was like, this is mine. You can't have it. Which, for the exact reason of you knew I'd probably want to do that one. Um, Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, no, I think it's because we've talked before about how there are a lot of vintage cases that are big that don't interest us as much like Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I know. We're just Although, not into Jack the Ripper. It's crazy, yeah. but I feel like it's just been so done. Yeah. Although I say um, that, and we did Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, which have also been, fair. like, so done. Fair. But also, on the other hand, your introduction to true crime was the Black Dahlia case, which I would definitely call vintage as well. Absolutely. I would as um, well. 
and is also very much overdone, but still is, I don't know, it's just more fascinating than Jack the Ripper. There's something about Jack the Ripper that doesn't interest me as much. I don't know. To me, I feel like it's so much so, or it's like England back in the 1800s, and it's been so overdone that it just feels so much more like, I don't know if fictionalized is the right word, but it feels like a novel from that time. It does. Not necessarily a crime that happened. And it's one that I can't build a connection to. I know. For some reason... I can't put myself in Victorian London. For some reason, I always feel... Like, when I think of Jack the Ripper, I think of Edgar Allan Poe, which I know that's not related. But yeah, I just find this, like, weird, I don't know, mental connection between the two. And anyway. Yeah. But... No, but fair. So, Vintage Murders, I'm really excited to see what you picked as your (laughs) second choice. Yeah. My Vintage Murders are really vintage one. It's from 1999. Oh my god. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going (laughs) to show my age. Um, But also, I feel like the aesthetic of Vintage Murders is very much you. Yes. I feel like if you, I don't know, if you went to a antique store and saw like i don't know how to describe it i have an image in my mind but like a vintage like a murder boudoir you'd be like buying it <laughs> um probably. do i know what a, mur- a murder boudoir is not really no i don't really that's... know what you're talking about but i understand what you're saying um yeah. so but before we get into our cases let's get into our wine what wine yes. did you pick um for this week is it vintagey um sure it's a reserve so there you go. It, it's that 2017, it's so it's oh. not. But since it's summer, I picked a white wine again. Also, I feel like we did so many red wines for so long. So I'm like, I'm going to lean into the white for a while. Do it. This wine is the Vigna San Esteban 2017 Reserve Sauvignon Blanc, which is a mouthful of a yes, name. Yes, it is. Um, and as y'all know, I really like Sauvignon Blancs, and my favorite ones are always from New Zealand. I've just found that the flavors of the Marlboro region ones are just right up my palate. This one, however, is a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc, which I don't Ooh. know if I've ever had. Oh, that's good. When I think good. Chile and Argentina, I think like Malbecs. Me too. But this Sauvignon Blanc, it's from the Central Valley, which is a very cooler Mediterranean climate kind of thing. You know, kind of dry, lots of sun. On the ocean. I also want to go to Chile so bad. Me too. Like, but this wine, the aroma of it is described as a doused match, roasted peppers and potatoes, and lemon beurblanc. So that is really interesting. I know, because I'm like, that is not something I would ever think from a Sauvignon Blanc. No. So that, that was one of the reasons why I was like, yes doused match i'm imagining like that like a smoky or like almost like a tannic smell i don't know i don't either Uh, the flavor is the same as the aromas with elements of lemon ice melon and apple rind and nut skin which (laughs) (laughs) sorry the 12 year old boy in me is giggling (laughs) i know it's like ooh, it has notes of scrotum and um Which everything, at least the lemon ice, melon, apple rind, I'm like, yep, that that sounds like a Sauvignon Blanc. But I'm nut assuming skin? nut skin. They mean like like a bitter, like pecan shell or something, or scrotum. So <laughs> you know they weren't they weren't very specific. So I don't really know what they're talking about there. 
<laughs> Walnut or scrotum. <laughs> you know, or both. <laughs> but um, it's <laughs> its sweetness is described as dry-ish, which, okay. All of the descriptors I found, I'm like, it's both very specific and not specific at all because what the hell does dryish mean? Um, so does it mean the nut the nut skin is not that sweaty? Like <laughs> it's dryish. It was wearing one of those activewear shirts. Oh god, <laughs> the dry fabric. <laughs> oh god, no. But um, you can enjoy it on your own. But it also pairs well with barbecue chicken pad thai or chicken fajitas Ooh, which oh sounds my gosh. wonderful chicken fajitas sound really good right now i know i went to um this mexican food restaurant in austin Madi's. yeah it's tex-mex and y'all it was good their margaritas were strong definitely i was not driving it was great <laughs> and on the back of the bottle it goes a little bit more into the fresh citric and floral aromas. Mm-hmm. Ooh, which, floral too. Wow. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like it's all over the board. And I'm really excited to try because I've never seen a Sauvignon Blanc described like this. So yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. So hurry up and <laughs> uh, talk about your wine so I can open mine. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, I'll just open it now. But while you're talking about yours. Yeah, go. It's also a screw top. Oh, it was also nice. $11, so you could probably find it most places for like 7 to 9 Oh, yeah, yeah, because your corner store is always a bit more pricey. Yeah, they, um, so I was going there. I also hadn't eaten today, so I was like, oh, I'll grab food to eat after the podcast, which means the wine's really going to kick in, actually. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, let me look at the pizza rolls or something. A box of 15 pizza rolls is $3. Is that a lot? I don't buy pizza rolls. Um, I feel like it, because the box of, or the bag of like, 15. 120 is like Five. $7. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At H-E-B and stuff. And then like, okay, here's a better example. Their, um, Chef Boyardee, like just a can of ravioli, is like two thirty nine, And I'm like, ugh. Okay, God. that's ridiculous. So I bought pizza rolls. Nice, that'll be good. Um, but okay, tell me about your wine. So the wine I picked, I decided to go back to our trusty Trader Joe's and pick out a wine. So mine is the 2017 Maison Barbelo, and it is a Cabernet Syrah, so it's a blend, and mm. it is French. Of course. And what? Brittany drinking French wine again? Always, always drinking the French wine. It's from the Languedoc region in France. It is from the foothills of Montaigne Noir in central southern France. And mm-hmm. it's a 50-50 blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah. So is it kind of in like the clermont Ferrand region? Because when I think... I know the cathedral in clermont Ferrand is made of like black volcanic stone. So is it no. that? No, oh. that is like well, in I was wrong. South Central France. This is in Central South France. So like right oh, on okay. the border of the Mediterranean before you get into Spain. Uh, okay, was where this fair. wine is from. So it has aromas of ripe cherry with some hints of vanilla on the palate and then a nice lingering finish. And mm. it's going to have those more tannic, like stronger tannins, uh, you know, as most French wines do, um, less on the fruity end, more on the, the tannic end. Um, it's mm-hmm. good with grilled sirloin, meatloaf, and casseroles. So like literally just, perfect just for casseroles. Well, just 
all casseroles, tater tot hot dish, tuna casserole. <laughs> oh, God. Um, no, yeah, not yeah, tuna I think casserole. you could probably call a, a lasagna a casserole. I mean, casserole is such a general term. Tuna casserole sounds real nasty, by the way. And Have you um, never had it? I don't know. It scares me. T- hot tuna? That sounds I mean, really gross. Have you never had a tuna melt? I don't think so. Tuna and cheese? Come on. Ew. I... I know, and I'm the one who bitches about seafood and cheese at any given opportunity, but tuna melts are good. But tuna, canned tuna, to <laughs> me, is so much closer to chicken than actual fish. No, that is true. It is more like chicken. Oh my god, like Jessica Simpson, is this? am I eating yeah. chicken or fish? <laughs> Which honestly, if she didn't know what a tuna was, I get it. You're going to side with her on this one? It's like I... you and her on one side, the rest of the world on the other side. You know what? I will say that I understand where she's coming from. <laughs> if if someone just gave me that on a plate and I'd never had tuna before, and they were like, this is uh, tuna, chicken of the sea. And I'd be like, so is it chicken or fish? <laughs> because this definitely, you know, looks like chicken. <laughs> I know tuna's a fish. Tell me it's chicken of the sea, so I'm... But what am I eating? <laughs> oh my god. One of the best things about this bottle, though, I will say, it's only $6 at Trader Joe's. And Ugh. and I will say, OTJs. it's another one that I have had before, but I've had it once months ago, and I could never find it again. And I finally found it, because like, I had tried it for something else, and I wanted to do it on an episode, and I have been searching for it, and I couldn't find it. I finally found it at one of the Trader Joe's here in Dallas, and I bought the rest of the bottles I had left, which was only two, so it's not like I went crazy or anything. But um, I'm so excited to try this again, because I haven't had it in so long. Ooh, So. Okay. All right. Is yours a normal opener or a screw top? It is a normal open. Oh, we haven't had one of those in a hot minute. I know. But yeah, let me get into this. You know, me with the red wine, I should have gone first so it could breathe a little bit. Oh, well, you didn't. I didn't. So. So. All right. Well, let's do our cheers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cheers. Cheers. We honestly need to take a picture of us cheersing like this so our listeners can truly get <laughs> how that stupid we're we literally look. <laughs> like hunched in front of an iPad, just clinking together a glass of wine and the bottle of wine. Well, remember that one time when I spilled it? <laughs> well, remember the one time that I dumped a <laughs> half a bottle of red wine on my desk and oh my wall God. and carpet. Wait, did we tell our listeners that? Or did we have to cut off? It was like this like a good 20-25 minute break where Tyler is freaking out. He spilled red wine. Is your wall still stained? Have you? Yeah, because oh, no. my walls are... They're like mad. They use chalk paint on them, which chalk paint looks great, but you can't scrub them because it'll just take the paint off. And yeah, so I'm just going to have to ask my apartment complex, like, hey, what paint did y'all use? You could ask them if they have a sample that you could have. You could just say, like, oh, I got a nick on the wall. I'd like to cover it up. I guess the only part would be if they're like, oh, just put in a maintenance request. We'll fix it. And maintenance comes in and they're like, oh, my God, is that wine or blood? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Door locks behind them. (laughs) No, I don't have a big enough apartment for it to be a murder castle. I'm not A.J. Tomes. No, I'm, I'm not saying there's someone hidden in the walls. 
I'm saying you just, like, got some uh, blood spatter. Oh, I was thinking, like, the walls were bleeding. Anyway, I'm going to drink my wine. <laughs> yes. I want to ta- taste this, like, testicular doused match. Oh, my God. That sounds revolting. Tell me what it tastes like. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting face. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, it definitely doesn't taste like balls. <laughs> um, That's good. It has a, it has a sharp, very lemony flavor. Yeah. Um, it's not as light bodied as uh the Sauvignon Blancs I'm I am used to. So it's, it's heavier, like a Chardonnay. Heavy, yeah, like an unoaked Chardonnay, or uh, honestly, I would say heavier than a Pinot Grigio is. Definitely, um, interesting. Which is because in, Sauvignon Blanc is usually like the lightest bodied and color wine there is. But no, it's good. Yeah, this one. Um, while you were trying yours, I tried mine too. It's definitely very smooth i taste that cherry right at the beginning but it has some earthy and that li- those like vanilla notes kind of a little bit of leather i would say as well hmm. Ugh, i'm a fan i knew why i loved this wine i will say just smelling it oh my god yes i see what they mean by a doused match you do yeah and it's not smoky it's just like almost like that 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 like phosphorus smell like what you smell when the match burns out and there's that little bit of smoke trailing off of it interesting and i get the roasted peppers but it's like a lightly olive oil roasted uh like pepper and onion is what i get so okay i'm interested um again don't taste nut skin (laughs) and in any form (laughs) but we have our wine yeah we have our wine and i think i'm just going to hop into my case yes tell me about your case what did you pick so I'll be interested if you've ever heard of this one. Okay. Because I think I'd heard the name, but I definitely did not know the case. But my case is the Lipstick Killer. I have heard of this case. Details don't know. The sources I used were GQ and Wikipedia. Nice. GQ had an article about this? Yeah, they had a really long article. Nice. Which I love long magazine articles. Same. Because they're just, I don't know, I feel like they go so, they have the space to go so in-depth. Absolutely. That, like, a lot of newspapers and stuff don't really have that, you know, they don't have seven or eight pages to fill. 100% um, agree. But yeah, GQ and Wikipedia. So, on the afternoon of June 5th, 1945, 43-year-old Josephine Ross was found dead in her home on the north side of Chicago. She had been stabbed four times in the throat. Oh, God. In the throat? Her wounds had been covered with, like, adhesive tape, and her head was bound in a skirt. Whoa. Like, regular, like, we talking, like, scotch tape, basically? Yeah, that's what I'm imagining, yeah. That's so... Why? I have no idea. I mean, because it's not like that's going to stop any bleeding. It's scotch tape. No. Um, and even if it was like packing, packing tape, tape or it's something. still not going to stop yeah. bleeding. No idea. So her blood-spattered apartment had been ransacked, but police were not able to find any fingerprints, and they couldn't find any motive. Dark hairs were found in her hand, which indicated she had struggled with the intruder before she was killed. Mm-hmm. Right. But... Her fiancé had an alibi, as well as her former boyfriends and ex-husbands, and police didn't have any other suspects. The only person 
they had was this person of interest that was a dark complected man who had been reported loitering at the apartment but they were unable to identify or locate this person yeah and it's just someone like loitering near the apartment like it it's not even there's nothing even like tying this mystery person really right it just happened to be something going on at the same time no links so six months later on the morning of december 11th the body of 32 year old stenographer francis brown was discovered in the bathroom of her apartment. She had been shot in the head and stabbed with a bread knife that had been driven into her neck with such force that it came out the other side of her throat. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, Her body had been stripped naked and rinsed of blood, and her head was wrapped in towels. And... Again, police weren't finding much evidence. The apartment had been wiped clean of fingerprints, but this time someone had left them a message. On the living room wall, written in Brown's own red lipstick, Mm -hmm. were the words, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Oh, that is cryptic. Yeah. And dark. And also, this is now... You know, you said in the first one, the face was covered with her skirt. And this one, it was covered with a a bag. Towels. Towels. So it's almost like the killer is wanting to... Like, hide... Like, completely make this not personal so they don't see that this is a person that they're doing this to. Like, just hiding their features, hiding, you know, the the eyes, the windows to the soul, all of that. You know, the things Mm -hmm. that make us human and who we are. I mean, there are a lot of things that make us human, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So that's really what um, it sounds like. But that message is, oh my god. Yeah. So that message, it it was just perfect for Chicago's sensationalist press. God, so much happens in Chicago. Yeah. The message was splashed across the front pages as the shocking work of a murderer that they then started calling the Lipstick Killer. Yep. Fitting name. They always have to name them something, you know? Yeah. So the third crime was the last and it was the most savage of the three and overnight the city would be paralyzed with terror at about 7:30 in the morning on january 7th 1946 james degnan discovered that his six-year-old daughter suzanne <gasps> was missing from her bedroom in their apartment no. so degnan called the police and by 10 a.m., five men were on the scene. Reporters, press photographers, detectives, and a patrolman were at the corner directing traffic. And while searching Suzanne's room, cops found a crumpled note that was telling the family to prepare a $20,000 ransom, not to notify the police, the FBI, and to wait for word from the kidnapper. Wait, so this seems like a totally different MO. Like It does. Like, did they even think that this could be the lipstick killer at this time or we will get into um the connections that they drew found and made okay so a man had repeatedly called the degnan residents demanding this ransom but would hang up before any meaningful conversation could take place and chicago mayor edward kelly also received a note at the same time that said This is to tell you how sorry I am to not get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? 
What? So basically, in this note, he's saying, like, you know, he's apologizing for getting the girl, for not being able to get the dad. Yeah. And instead having to settle for the girl. And then he's pissed at the OPA, which I'll go into in a sec, and thinks that, you know, they're making their own laws, he can make his. So at the time of all of this happening, there was a nationwide meatpackers strike. And the OPA, or the Office of Price Administration, Mm -hmm. was talking about extending the rationing to dairy products. Oh. That would affect more people. Degnan was a senior OPA executive and had recently been transferred to Chicago. And another OPA executive had been recently assigned armed guards after receiving threats against his children. And in Chicago... A man who was involved in black market meat had recently been decapitated. Holy shit. By angry, striking meat packers. Wait, so they just, like, as a mob decapitated this guy, or? Yeah. Oh my god, that is, that is brutal. Um, so initially police are considering the possibility that the Degnan kidnapper was a meat packer. Yeah. But... It wasn't long before the kidnapping and ransom were both revealed to be a cruel ruse. What? At 7 p.m. that night, (gasps) Suzanne's severed head was found less than a block away, floating in a sewer catch basin. Holy shit. Oh. Blue ribbons. Her blue hair ribbons were still tied in her hair. I I don't even know what to say about that. During the next few hours. Yeah. Over the next few hours. Her legs and torso were recovered from separate locations in sewers nearby. Her arms were found a month later in another sewer, and blood was found in the drains of laundry tubs in the basement laundry room of a nearby apartment building. So she'd never been taken far. So the Chicago coroner fixed Suzanne's time of death as between 12.30 and 1 a.m., Oh, that's a really narrow amount of time. Yeah, and it was also before she was even noticed to have been missing. Oh my god. Because dad noticed she was missing at 7 a.m. when he went to, like, wake her up. Of course, which... And she'd been killed that night. Someone's child being stolen from their bedroom is one of the most horrific horrifying. things I don't know ever ever happened to ever imagine like because again we talked about this in the home invasion you feel like your home is your safe space and being snatched so, out of that I just can't even or to know yeah. more of the the heartbreaking part of it is that to know that you were literally in the next room yeah but the coroner also stated that a very sharp knife had been used to expertly dismember her body and this site where she was dismembered was found to be the basement laundry room of the apartment nearby but it was determined that she had was already dead before being taken to that room yeah um and the coroner's I mean, that's expert good at least yeah none, none of this yeah. is good good is not the right word i mean that's but preferable yeah I guess. Uh, But the coroner's expert stated that the killer was either a man who worked in a profession that required the study of anatomy, or one with a background in dissection. Not even the average doctor could be as skillful. It had to be a meat cutter. Oh my god. So the coroner confirmed, adding that it was a very clean job with absolutely no signs of hacking. So whoever did it, they knew, knew what exactly they were doing. what they were doing. Yes. Yeah. And there were quite a few 
I don't necessarily want to call them witnesses, but the leads and suspects they got from the neighbors. Several of the apartment building residents stated that the afternoon before the murder, a woman dressed in a man's coat chased some children after offering them candy. Oh. And another neighbor reported that at about 1 a.m., he saw a man who was around 5'9 and 35 years old carrying a bag walking out of the Degnan home. Oh my god. And uh, just there are a bunch of different people seeing men or women around the area being suspicious, but most of them either point to a man or a woman who are both middle-aged. So once these gruesome details of the murder went out, this case became the first national crime sensation of the post-war era. Jeez. Chicago police questioned thousands of men and women and arrested a lot of different subjects. And with each arrest, state attorney William Toohey announced that they had definitely found their man. Oh my um, gosh, but how do you keep saying that over and over? This is definitely him. Exactly. No, this is definitely him. They took in the 65-year-old janitor from the building where Suzanne was dismembered, and they tortured him for two days before releasing him when he refused to confess. I mean, this was back in the bad days of the Chicago Police Department, where torture was very rampant yeah. in getting confessions. But he was released. Months went by, and police exhausted all the leads that they had. And by the start of the summer of 1946... A few smudged fingerprints that had been found by the FBI on the ransom note were the only thing they had left to go on. Smudged fingerprints, which means they're not even full fingerprints. So if you'll remember, on the day of Suzanne's disappearance, her dad got several calls from the kidnapper about the ransom. Yeah. But they would never leave further instructions or have further conversation about how to make the payment, things like that. But the mystery of who placed these calls was finally answered. While checking out local people of interest to see if they had any connection to the case, police picked up a local boy named Theodore Campbell. Under questioning, he admitted that another local teenager named Vincent Costello had killed Suzanne. Oh, a teenager? Yeah. And the Chicago Tribune declared the case solved. Oh, wow, wait, that seems really fast and way too quick. No. Yeah. Costello lived just a few blocks away from the Degnan apartment building and attended a nearby high school before being convicted of armed robbery when he was 16 Mm -hmm. and being sent to a reform school. And according to the story that Campbell told police, Costello told him that he kidnapped and killed the girl and disposed of her body. Costello also told Campbell to make ransom calls to the Degnans, and this corroborated the these mystery ransom calls that they had received right. the night she went missing, what, had, or the morning after she went missing. Had that been released to the public, that information? Well, Or leaked? No. It hadn't been released yet, so that was one of the things they are like, That was one okay. of them, they're like, alright, this yeah. is a clue for us. So... Police arrested Costello on that basis and overnight interrogated him. But the story started to fall apart when both Campbell's and Costello's polygraph tests indicated that 
they had no knowledge of the murder. They were lying. They later admitted that they had heard police officers discussing details oh, of the case. Oh my god. And came up with the idea of calling the Degnans about the ransom. So they Wait. did make those calls, but just because they had overheard the police that day. Because there are about two it, little shits. Yeah. Like, why would you fuck with a family like that? That is so disgraceful. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. So. Now we're going to shift focus to 17-year-old Bill Herons. Oh, so this is a completely different person. Yes. So Bill had enjoyed a happy childhood in Chicago. He was smart and had a, this interest in fixing things, was very fond of drawing and telling his younger brother science fiction stories. But by 17, he was also a pretty experienced petty criminal, and was known to the Chicago police. He was only 12 when, as he's working as a grocery delivery boy, he stole for the first time. He accidentally shortchanged himself with a customer and decided to make up the difference by reaching through the crack in a chain-locked apartment door to steal a single dollar bill from an open purse that was inside. Okay. So you know the, like, hotel chains, so you can open the door, like, two inches? Yeah. He opened that, just reached and grabbed a $1 bill from an open purse. After that, stealing became easier to him. Yeah. And his burglary developed into a habit. He was arrested for the first time in June of 42 at the age of 13 for breaking into a basement locker in an apartment near his home. And at the time, he told his parents that he got the idea for the burglaries from radio programs and comics, and he thought it would be exciting. Which, hmm. for a 13-year-old to say, probably. Yeah, I mean, no, I, get that. I don't know. So he was found guilty in juvenile court on 10 counts of burglary, and sentenced to spend a year at a correctional school in Indiana. And how old was he at this time? 13. Okay, this is when he was 13. That's what I thought. Yes. Um, so after the year at the school, he's back in Chicago the next summer, and he was arrested again, and this time sent to a private school in Peru, Illinois. Yeah. But at both of these schools, he proved to be a very good student. And when he was 16, he won a place at the University of Chicago, as part of an experimental scheme that was open to gifted students. And he enrolled for a Bachelor of Science, hoping to become an electronics engineer. So, and this was when he was 16? He was, like, beginning yeah. this college program? Yeah, at the University of Chicago. Yeah, that's a which big is, deal. Yeah. So clearly, he was very intelligent. Like, regardless of was, his yeah. juvenile delinquency life that he was living, he's a very smart person. Absolutely. So he moved to the campus and he made himself busy. He learned to dance and play chess. He bought a radio phonograph and he began a collection of South American and classical music. He found his coursework to be difficult, especially with all the distractions of his new social life and a series of girlfriends. Oh my gosh. And by Christmas of 1945, Two weeks before Suzanne went missing, he had returned to his old habits of breaking into strangers' homes to steal whatever he could get his hands mm -hmm. on. So, on the afternoon of June 26th, 1946, so six months after Suzanne's murder, right. Hiran set out to the post office to cash $1,000 in savings bonds that he'd bought with money taken in previous burglaries. Yeah, that he still had because on he. Because he needed cash for a date with his girlfriend, mm -hmm. and 
because he planned on carrying so much money, he put a revolver in his pocket for protection. Wow. When he found the post office was closed, being the person he is, he decided that to get the cash he needed, he was going to steal it. He decided to burgle a building that he'd stolen in before that was just a few blocks from the Degnan house. He had just lifted a dollar bill from inside an open apartment when one of the tenants in the apartment spotted him, and Hurens ran out and ran up the back stairs of a nearby building and was cornered by two policemen. And so he was stealing. He decides to pull the gun. He was stealing a dollar at this time. Yeah. Um. So he's cornered by the policemen, and he decides to pull out his gun. So not a smart move, dude. So now there, there's a disagreement about what happened next. Officer Tiffin Constant's statement records that Hirons pulled the trigger of the gun, but the revolver misfired, so it didn't actually shoot anything. Mm-hmm. Hirons denies that he ever tried to shoot the policeman, but, you know, after this, Constant fired three times with his own revolver. Oh my gosh. And Hirons leapt down the stairs at him, like, at the police officer. Yeah. He leapt on him. Holy shit. Um... So as they're struggling, an off-duty officer, Abner Cunningham, who is still in his swimming trunks after spending a day at the beach, arrives on the scene, because he lives nearby, and picks up a stack of three flower pots and smashes them repeatedly over Heron's head. (gasps) And by the time the- That's a bit aggressive. Yeah, it it gets worse. Oh, shit. (laughs) So by the time the third pot had shattered, Heron's was unconscious. He got his head stitched and bandaged, and he was taken to the police hospital at the Cook County Jail, where he was strapped to a bed. He pretended to be unconscious, but he heard someone say that he was a suspect in Suzanne's murder, and he could feel his fingerprints being taken. At this same time, police are raiding his parents' house, his room at the university, and a locker at uh, the E-train station where they discovered the hall from a lot of his previous burglaries. Yeah. Oh, so that's where he was keeping it. Yeah. Oh. So cops in rotating shifts of three hovered at his bedside, asking what they assumed to be a comatose 17-year-old boy, how he killed Suzanne, and no attorney was ever called. So they're just interrogating him as he's strapped down to this hospital bed. But as far as they know, he can't answer. So why are they bothering doing this? I have no idea. Are they trying to, like, get the ideas in his head that he did it? I mean, I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but if he's comatose... It's not. It's not far-fetched at all with what I'm about to go into. Okay. Because it sounds like they're trying to convince him in his comatose state that he did this just in case the off chance that he didn't. Because they believe he did. I can tell. They think he did it, and they just want to make sure that's what he says, so they're trying to get these thoughts in his head. But also, so far, what they have is, this is a couple blocks away from the apartment, six months after, and he's just a petty thief. Well, and the thing is, I'm sure- And they're trying to pin the murder on him. Yeah, I'm sure a ton of shit happened a couple blocks from these apartments six months after. Because literally, it's Chicago, and like we said, (laughs) a ton of shit's happening there. Yeah. So on the third day, he, while lying in bed, he heard that his prints matched those of the smudged fingerprints on the ransom note. But how did they know they're fucking smudged? I literally, I'm sorry. I I know I keep interrupting, but I have so many problems. Oh, I know. Um, So the state's attorney announced that police had arrested 
Suzanne Degnan's murderer. And Heron's name was immediately thrown into the headlines of the Chicago papers and started a press frenzy that would go on for months. And police now became determined to get a confession. Uh, The police commissioner, John Prendergast, told the Herald American, I don't see how we can miss on this one. He knows he did it, and he knows we know he did it. Still tied to his bed in the hospital, Hurens was encouraged to talk. First by a male nurse pouring ether on his genitals. What? And later by a detective punching him in the stomach. Yeah, they're straight up torturing him to get a confession. So what exactly does ether do? Ether is a like solvent that is highly volatile. So think something along the lines of bleach or Oh my god. Something, something you yeah. don't want on your skin. Exactly. Um yeah, so he's being tortured. And the cops are now insisting that he was responsible not only for murdering Suzanne but also for the murders of Francis Brown and Josephine Ross. Okay, so this is where I've been holding my tongue because I want to know what the connections are. Because I am not There's... seeing them. Exactly. I, for, for through all my research, I did not see any connections really. There are a couple that I'll go into in a little bit, but they're so weak. Yeah. They're so weak. Um, and they also pinned him on two other women whose murders had never been solved. Oh my so gosh. now he's being it's charged like with five murders. They're just like, okay, we have this list of unsolved cases. Let's see if we can find some weak-ass link to tie it to this kid. Yeah, because if they can solve him, boom. We don't have to work on that anymore. Exactly. Oh my god. So Hurens was grilled relentlessly under a blazing spotlight with the details of the Degnan murder being repeated to him again and again to prompt him to explain why he'd done it. But still, he refused to confess. On the fourth day, two psychiatrists arrived, and he was injected with sodium pentothal, also known as truth serum. You know, I didn't... When I picked this topic, I didn't think of the fact of how fucked up the remedies were to elicit a confession. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fucking horrible. Because sodium pentothal... It's called truth serum. Yeah. What it does is it just makes you very suggestible. So, yeah, if you're injected with that and someone says something along the lines of, you did this, you did this, did you do it? You're going to say, say yes. yes. So he's being held in a state of semi-conscious delirium, and he's questioned for three hours while the assistant state attorney sat just out of sight behind a folding screen so that he can be charged the second he's confesses yeah on the fifth day he was given a spinal tap oh my god to see if he's like faking needing to be in the hospital to like not answer the questions and shit and was not given an anesthetic oh my god wait at all so i'm sorry you may have said this but is he still pretending he's in a coma while they're asking him questions he's not oh they're just doing this to torture him oh my god so after being tortured and held without food sleep or access to an attorney for five days herons was finally indicted for assault with intent to kill robbery 23 counts of burglary and three counts of murder on july 12th of 1946 and was transferred to the county jail where lawyers who were hired by his parents 
explained that just for the burglaries alone, he was facing life in prison. Which he did those. Yeah. So that is really messed up. Mm -hmm. And they're just throwing the others in again to get them off their checklist. Yeah. And also it's one of those, probably if he was just charged with the 23 burglaries, he wouldn't get life life in prison right but because of all the other stuff yeah so reporters camped outside his parents home and each day they filled the papers with stories linking him to apparently damning evidence in the three murders his fingerprints were suddenly matched to ones that had been found months later at the scene of francis brown's killing suddenly yep you know remember when they took his fingerprints when he was in a coma I am not oh, yeah. putting it past these cops to plant those. Oh, with not with how at all. weak all these connections are, I'm like, no, no, no. His handwriting was decided to match that of the ransom note. Of course, it was. Even though that ransom note looks like a three year old wrote it, like it's it's so hard to read. I looked it up while you were telling your case, and it's like they're not even straight lines. Words are all over the mm-hmm. place. Like it looks almost like a yeah. like a. It's to me, it's the handwriting of someone who's probably mentally not super well educated, and definitely not someone who's a student at the University of Chicago studying engineering. That or someone who's mentally ill and is just kind of writing all over the page in in a manic way. Yeah, but not 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 the writing you would expect from this guy who went to college at sixteen. Yeah. So the firestorm of public opinion that was raised by the state attorney, the police, and the press reached a peak intensity on July fifteenth when Hurens heard over the radio in his prison cell that he had given a confession, reported in full by the Chicago Tribune under the headline "Hurens slew three. And remember, he hasn't confessed yet. No. So he's finding out that he said a confession for the first time from the news. And he's like, I did not. A Chicago Tribune reporter had apparently just gone ahead and concocted a confession from existing information that was known about the crime. And the other Chicago papers just reprinted it as fact. They're like, yep, sure, this happened. Mm-hmm. So, I'm so uh, to mad. his parents. I'm so mad right now. Oh, yeah. To his parents, Hearns is continuing to in- insist that he's innocent. But he also knows that if he goes to trial in a city that has already convicted him of guilt time and time again, that he's gonna. The only outcome is execution. He's gonna get oh, the electric my chair. Oh god, because it's the 40s, so yes. Yeah. And a jury of his peers. And they've already determined he's guilty. Oh, yeah. The entire city has decided he's guilty. This is why so this... you do trials in other cities now. Yeah. So the state attorney offered him a deal. In exchange for a confession to all three murders, he would be spared the electric chair and would receive three concurrent life sentences with a chance for parole in 20 years. Okay. Which shows you just how little evidence they actually had on it. Yeah, because they're like, we'll give you three life sentences with a chance of parole in 20 years when you're, what, 37? Yeah. Two weeks later, after being kept in solitary confinement and repeatedly rehearsing the details of the crimes with his attorneys, Hirons was ready to confess. But when the day came and he faced the state attorney across the courtroom, he again denied knowledge, knowing anything about the murders. So the state attorney is furious and humiliated. Yeah. So he adjourns the hearing 
and told Hiran's attorneys that the deal's off. And now, all his confession will get him is three consecutive sentences, so one after the other instead of all at the same time. Wow, so that went from, in his situation, a really good deal to really shitty, where it's like literally... What what did we determine they said a life sentence was? Like 100 years or something? Was, 60? I feel like it was like 60 years. So that he's now at 180 years. That's not a From, deal. I mean, yeah. I guess it, but it, it's But just literally... because he like pissed off the state attorney by not confessing. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, that was the person in the position to make the deal. So yeah, you pissed that person mm-hmm. off. Then you kind of like shot yourself in the foot. So it's like yeah. now, instead of his original relatively good deal in this situation, he's now looking at, are we going to kill you, <laughs> execute you, or you'll be in prison for the rest of your life? And it's like, huh, what do you want? You want to live in jail or you want to just go ahead and, oh, yeah. this is messed up. So on August 7th of 1946, after spending 42 days in custody and making three attempts to commit suicide, Hirons confessed to the state attorney how... In the course of two botched burglaries, he'd stabbed, shot, and killed Francis Brown and Josephine Ross and gone to... Wait, so he did finally confess to it? He did. And he'd gone on to strangle and dismember Suzanne Degnan. Because also, remember, if this goes to trial, he's getting executed. Of course, that's right. So, it's trial or prison. So, and on September 6th, he was chained up to a dozen other prisoners. That's terrible. That's true. Yep. Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) And they drove him to the prison in Joliet, escorted by the chief of the county highway police and nine deputies armed with shotguns. Soon after he was arrested, his parents and younger brothers changed their last name from Herons to Hill due to just the horrible public everything. Did they think he did it? And I don't think they think he did, but... Just for their own safety It's one of those that literally... yeah. Yeah. And soon after his conviction, his parents did divorce. I could see that breaking marriage. So, Herons began his sentence at Stateville, which is the maximum security prison that housed Chicago's most dangerous criminals. Mm -hmm. And on the day of his arrival, a crowd of more than 300 people and a dozen press photographers gathered to catch a glimpse of the teenage killer. Herons was first housed in statewide prison in Joliet, or Stateville Prison in Joliet, and he learned several trades, including electronics and television and radio repair, and at one point he even had his own repair shop in the prison. Oh, wow. Before a college education was available to prison inmates, on February 6th of 1972, Hirons became the first prisoner in Illinois history to earn a four-year college degree, getting a Bachelor of Arts. Which he did, like, in prison? Yeah. And he also aided other prisoners' educational progress by helping them with their GED diplomas and also becoming kind of a jailhouse lawyer, you know, helping them with their appeals, writing them and stuff. Because he Um, knew how this process worked and... He knew how the process worked and he was good with words and... I mean, also today, but especially then, this was a time when a lot of people went to prison, basically went to prison for being uneducated. Right, because they couldn't, like, they couldn't get out of it or have the right things to say or any of that. Yeah. So Herons was given an institutional parole for the Deegan murder in 1965. And in 1966, he was discharged on that case and began serving his second life sentence. Oh. So he 
Wait, was so he got parole. sort of eligible for parole, but on an individual case basis. So the second he got parole for that one, he started serving his second life sentence. Which, I mean, this sounds shitty, but it's like at least he marked out that first life sentence with getting parole. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe he can do it again and again, but I guess not. No. From the look you just gave me. Yeah. So although he wasn't freed, the parole policies of the day meant that he was considered rehabilitated by prison authorities and the Deegan case could no longer legally be put forward as a reason to deny parole. So technically, he also could be paroled for the other two ones. At that at time, point in this. but yeah. he wasn't. Based on the regulations of, from 1946, from when he was arrested, he should have been discharged from the Brown murder in 1975 and from all remaining charges in 1983. But in 1973... The focus moved from rehabilitation to punishment and deterrence, which blocked all moves to release him. Oh my god. So even though he was considered rehabilitated and should have been released, the uh, mindset of how prison should work at the time had shifted to the point where they're like, no, it's punishment, it's not rehabilitation. So in 1983, the 7th District U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that it was unconstitutional to refuse parole on deterrence grounds to inmates convicted before 1973, and Magistrate Gerald Cohn ordered Illinois to release Herons immediately. How old was he at this time? He's in his 40s. Okay. The brother and sister of Suzanne Dignan uh, went public, pleading with the authorities to fight the ruling, and Attorney General Neil Hardigan stated, Only God and Herons know how many other women he murdered. Oh my god. Now a bleeding heart do-gooder decides that Herons is rehabilitated and should go free. I'm gonna make sure that that kill-crazed animal stays where he is. Kill-crazed animal. And this sentiment was supported by the media. I mean, of course it was. So, it's, it's more like... It's more dramatic. Yeah. And so the Illinois Senate passed a resolution that as the confessed murderer of Suzanne Degnan, a six-year-old girl whom he strangled in 1946, that is the opinion of the chamber that the release of William Herons at this time would be detrimental to the best interest of the people of the state. And with support from prominent politicians, the 1983 court ruling was later reversed. Wow. In 2002... Oh my god, wait, he's still alive at that time? Yeah. Lawrence C. Marshall filed a petition on Heron's behalf seeking clemency, and the appeal was denied. Mm. Which I said that thinking like 2002 was like two years ago. It wasn't. So in 2003, former Los Angeles police officer Steve Hodel, who had spent 25 years on the force, met Herons in 2003 when he was investigating these murders. Because he was like, we need to take a second look at mm -hmm. this. This is not right. Because, again, the evidence they have on him is a tortured, forced confession and his fingerprint matching a smudged, a smudged fingerprint, maybe. And also... After they had gotten his fingerprints, suddenly, a months-old case, they found fingerprints at her place and connected to him. Which I'm just like... Kind of thing. No. What did they do? Like, go back in there and, like, dust her fingerprints months later and be like, oh, golly gee, we found some. Yeah. So, Steve Hodel was convinced that Herons was innocent of these crimes. Yeah. 
but all of the appeals and everything... He was out of appeals. Ne- they never worked. And after being taken to the University of Illinois Medical Center on February 26th of 2012 due to complications from diabetes, mm-hmm. Hirons died on March 5th of 2012 at the age of 83 after spending 66 years behind bars for crimes that most likely he did not do. Oh my god. Yeah. So <laughs> two women were murdered, a child was murdered and dismembered, and an innocent man spent 66 years in jail and died. And we still don't know who really did them because he has been no. accepted as the killer. Yeah. Because there's no one they're not they're not looking anymore. No. I think nowadays there are there are more movements to exonerate him and to find the killer. And the GQ article I was reading was written in 2008. Yeah. And it was an interview with him. And it was fucking heartbreaking. Oh my God. And it was, you know, to get support for an appeal to get him out of prison. Yeah. But four years after that article, he died in prison. So, yeah, that is the case of the lipstick killer. Someone who I very much believe uh, is either still out there or is, I mean, maybe dead at this point. Dead because, because of, it happened a long time ago. Because of when it happened, but, but that those never, were never truly was char- correctly charged yeah. for their crimes. Let us jump into your case. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, start sipping your wine because mine is really fucked up. It's a doozy. Okay. So I did the Cleveland torso murders, which, as you know, is really know. intense because <laughs> you wanted to pick. Yeah. It. Oh, I know. So this. To be fair, I didn't know too too much about the case. It's one I've heard of, and I I had like read into it years ago. Right. But I don't. I never like followed up or really like dove into it again. So it's one you'll probably say things, and I'll be like, mm, yeah, but. Okay. Yeah. I made sure not to, uh, I picked it and immediately texted you. Which was very nice And when you texted back, go away, (laughs) that's mine. I was like, fine, I won't research then. (laughs) So. Um, so the sources I used, I used the Cleveland Police Museum, which had a fantastic article about the case. The Encyclopedia of Cleveland History, Historic Mysteries, and cleveland.com just the city's website oh, expocleveland.com expo.cleveland.com okay. okay that makes more sense. i was just like huh that, <laughs> and that, cleveland.com oh you know you has click on- here to pay your water bill <laughs> click here to look at city services and employment and click here to look at the uh cleveland torso murders click here to find out the history of this horrific murder in our city also, just one thing I want to know. I think I know the reason, and it's probably budget reasons, but why is it that so many city websites just look like someone created them from, like, a Zanga page <laughs> in 2001 and never updated it? Because they did. Because, <laughs> I <laughs> fair, actually, yeah. Because, God, I I go to some, and it's like... There's, like, spinning word art, like, 3D bubble text of, like, here's the town newsletter. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, well, and I... There's, like, moving, like, glitter in the background. You know, like, not not GIFs, but, like, how you can animate text mm-hmm. to, like, wave and have glitter. Like, old school PowerPoint. Ugh. Yeah, 
bad. Um, it's bad. So, cities, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to drink my wine. During the 1930s, Cleveland was a city that is on the rise. The population is growing, and they were becoming this melting pot of laborers that were needed to support their economically powerful steel and manufacturing base. So they're needing a lot I of people. Forget, I forget that in the 20th century, Cleveland was like poised to rival Chicago. Absolutely. In city size. Because you never, like today, you don't think of Cleveland as like this huge metropolis. Yeah, but I think it's but bigger think, than a lot of people realize it is. I know the metro area is, but like a lot of Rust Belt cities, population has declined in the city. But I think that it hit a peak population... I want to say close to a million back in the 30s, 40s. Wow. When automation, like a huge yeah. city. Yeah. And it's, I think now it's around 300,000. That is a which huge is, dip. Yeah. I mean, very similar to what, what we've seen like with Detroit and stuff. Right. Right. Well, you know, at this time they are on the boom and despite the effects of the Great Depression, people are starting to get on their feet again. Because, again, this was the 30s. The Depression had recently ended. And people are coming coming out on the other side of that. I want to visit Cleveland really bad. I think it would be an interesting place to visit. I have friends who are from the area. And I'm just very intrigued by it. Because it's not somewhere that would be on many people's travel destinations. But I, as you know, um, and you are similar, would love to travel anywhere. So I'd like to go. It's it's within the U.S. in the same way that going to Chicago or uh, like, I don't know, Denver or something isn't that crazy expensive. But it's right on the coast of Lake Erie. Yeah. And the skyline is gorgeous. One of my favorite buildings. I think it's the Key Tower downtown. Anyways, I want to go to Cleveland. Put it on your list, man. Add it to that ever list. I want to do that. I want to do like maybe once a month or well no I don't have enough PTO for that <laughs> once every two months do like a weekend a trip? four day oh like a long like a leave Thursday night come back Monday night so you only have to take two days off or something yeah. to like different places like Minneapolis or Boston or Cleveland or yeah like Boise I think you'd like but Boston anyways I think I would like Boston a lot. It was, when I was moving to Seattle, Boston was my third place city. What was number two? Minneapolis. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Because it's very, Minnesota in general, and especially that whole area is very Norwegian. And Minneapolis, it doesn't, it's not on the water, but it's about as close as you can get to a city like Oslo. And I was like, yay! And then I went to Seattle. Yeah. Okay, I'm jumping back in. So... While the city is improving economically and just, like, booming, one of the most prolific and gruesome serial killers of all time was carrying out his acts of horror. Oof. In all, 13 people were brutally murdered over the course of four years, beginning in 1934 to 1938. 13. All of them were decapitated, and most of them while they were still alive. Oh, that is... I mean, we've talked about worse ways to die here, burned alive, buried in concrete alive, but the brutality of being decapitated while alive, like, yeah, it's probably quicker, but it's so brutal. Well, it depends. And, like, I'll get into more details, but these were a quick, like, 
Like when you watch some type of medieval show and they cut your head off with a sword and it's very instant and you die instantly. It was like that. It wasn't someone that's using like a handsaw. A hacksaw. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, fair. It's still. It's fucking brutal as shit. It's quicker, but it's so brutal. It is so dehumanizing. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just, I just can't even. Um, and also, just it ha- it it takes like passion to do that. Passion there's so in much the worst shit in way you could define passion. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, not in a good way, but because necks are hard to get through. There's a lot of shit there's going a lot. on. In there. There's a lot of there's like your carotid and your your fucking spine, all the muscle mm-hmm. that's in your neck. I mean, to hold your head up. Oh yeah, heads are heavy. It takes a lot yeah. to hold them up. And your neck puts on a lot of that pressure. One way to visualize it is um, when they do tests on, like, decapitation and things like that, they'll often, like, to represent a neck, use, like, ropes and stuff. Something of that strength. Whereas if you think about, like, your thumb, which you're like, oh, yeah, it'd be probably pretty hard to cut through a thumb. Uh, It actually takes about the exact same force to bite through a baby carrot. As it would to bite through a thumb. Oh my god, are you serious? Or a finger. You're telling me that if I really wanted to bite off my thumb, if I had no pain receptors in my thumb, it would be like a baby carrot. Yeah, yeah. But your body tells you not to actually bite that hard. I know. My mouth was scared. I just tried it. What if I just bit off my thumb right here in the middle of the podcast? I'm like, see, it's really easy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure podcast would be over. So listeners, Tyler I mean, will not be biting off his thumb this episode. No, I don't want to lose any of my fingers. <laughs> Maybe next time. Stay tuned in to find out if I still have ten fingers. <laughs> so this is clearly one of the most gruesome crime sprees in oh, yeah. history. These murders were called the Torso Murders by the press, and the killer was called the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. So, Which is just, I will, you've got to hand it to press people back then and in general like some of these names i'm like oh fuck that's good no this is like creepy poetic the yeah. mad butcher of kingsbury run sounds like it should be in fucking game of thrones at one point like it is it's house kingsbury um it, it's just yeah they this is one where they're like yep yep nail on the head that was a title that obviously fucking lasted but that's uh, not yeah. why title's not why well yeah so <laughs> Kingsbury Run is this riverbed that was running from the flats to about East 90th Street. So it's just an area that's lower down, just kind Mm -hmm. of there. And there was a train and rapid transit tracks that still currently run through the run. And it's bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broadway Avenue. Kingsbury Run was this very, in the 30s, like dark, dreary, and dangerous place it was not somewhere you wanted to be the people who had been hit really hard during the great depression created this hobo jungle of sorts so a lot of makeshift homes and the people would ride the rails in the area to get out of the cold or at least just to move just to have something to do so yeah there's just a lot of the makeshift homes in the area and it's not where you would really be and the, yeah, it's a it's a skid row. Kind it's of thing. a skid row thing in the 30s for sure. And the area just east of the run was known as the Roaring Third, which was home to different bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. 
So again, not this rugged bad area, but the area where you, you would go to do not so great things or secretive things in the 30s. Yeah, places where you don't want to be known. Exactly. You don't want to be known by name. Mm-hmm. So in September 1934, a young man found the lower half of a woman's torso, thighs still attached but amputated at the knees, washed up on the shores of Lake Erie. Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted that there was some type of chemical preservative on the skin of this woman, and it had turned it red, tough, and leathery. And Oh my god. In a subsequent search, they yielded only a few other body parts and determined that it was a woman in her mid-30s, but her head was never found. She was never identified, and she was referred to as the Lady of the Lake. I just, again, we've talked about it before, but it's so terrifying to think before things like DNA or even, like, good fingerprinting and shit, how fucking easy it would have been to get away with murder. I know. Because if the person who did this, I don't know if they were caught, but if they had just killed her and never again, they would never have been caught. There's no evidence on her. They would have gone away scot-free. So a year later, in September 1935, two teenage boys discovered the decapitated, emasculated corpse of a white male at the base of Jackson Hill, where East 49th Street deadens into Kingsbury Run. So again, same area, Kingsbury Run. Emasculated like he had his genitals removed? Oh, fuck. The body was naked except for a pair of socks, was clean and completely drained of blood, and there were some rope burns around both of his wrists. Foreigner Pierce determined that the cause of death had been decapitation, so again, done while alive. And fingerprints identified this victim as Andrew Andresi. He was a 28-year-old male who had an arrest record. He uh, was rumored to be homosexual, and he frequented the Roaring Third, so that area that was... Like bars and brothels and shit. Yes, exactly. Nearby, police found a second body who had also been decapitated and emasculated, and it appeared to be covered with the same chemical preservative as the Lady of the Lake a year prior. Oh, This body had apparently been dead for a couple of weeks, so a little bit different time frame than that, uh, the body of Edward, but in the same general area. This second body was a 40-year-old white male who was never identified. Mm -hmm. There was no blood found at the scene, which shows that the murders of these bodies, though they happened at different times, happened elsewhere, and that their bodies were transported here and and dumped, that this maybe was the dump site. So in January 1936, a few months later, a woman discovered half of a body of a female neatly wrapped in newspaper and packaged in two half-bushel baskets. The baskets were left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue, which was near East 20th Street. He just put her in baskets? Half of her body. Put half of her body in baskets. Everything except the head was recovered about 10 days later in a vacant lot near Orange Avenue. So it's like parts of her body were in the baskets. Then they found the rest of her body by Orange Avenue, but never her head. It's weird. I don't know. I, I guess when I think of body disposal, I feel like you rarely hear of it in the middle of a city. Yeah, this is literally like, granted, it's in like the rougher areas, but... 
but it's it's there and, I, and people I mean, are stumbling it, across the remains it's like yeah, he wanted so it, them to be found he wanted them to be found and it i mean i i'm sure it happens more often than you hear but i feel like it's so risky because anyone you know anyone can by see nature a city has it. a lot of people in it so yeah, yeah. Anyone can see you dropping off baskets. But maybe someone did, and he was their next victim. I mean, I don't know. Good point. Um, she had also, the cause of death was determined to be decapitation. But for some reason, the killer had waited until rigor mortis set in before he dismembered the rest of the body. Oh, Fingerprints would, however, allow the identification of this body. Her name was Florence Palillo, and she was a waitress, a barmaid, and a sex worker. I wonder when the National Fingerprint Registry started. Because I feel like everyone, more or less, is fingerprinted. I don't know. Right? That's a good question. You should, like, look that up, because I have no idea. Um, I'll look it up while you continue. Yeah, so she lived on the edge of the Roaring Third, which makes sense as to why her work was what it was. So six months later, in June 1936, early one morning on Kingsbury Run, two young boys discovered the head of a white male wrapped in trousers. Oh. The next day, the police found the body of a 20-something-year-old man dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad police building. Dumped in front of the police building? Yeah, the body was clean and drained uh, of blood, and the corpse was intact except for the head. So... Is it easy to drain someone of blood? Because I weirdly hear that a lot with killers. To be honest, maybe this is a very unsophisticated answer, but I feel like if you cut off their head and hang them upside down, eventually the blood's going to come no, out. No, yeah, that, that makes sense. Also, I looked into it, and it turns out... The only fingerprints that are retained, generally, are if you've been arrested, you're fingerprinted. Yeah. I guess if they're able to identify these victims, they might have been arrested, but they're in a rough area, so that wouldn't be super surprising. But So far, we're hmm. up to one person being, or two people being identified. Yeah. So, again, it was determined that cause of death was decapitation, and they took a fresh set of p- fingerprints from this body and the body had six distinctive tattoos on various parts, police were never able to identify the victim. They even... Really? Even with the tattoos? Even with the tattoos and a plaster repercussion of the man's head, along with a diagram of the kind of tattoos he had and their location, they were made at a display at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936, and more than 100,000 people saw his um, quote-unquote death mask and the tattoo chart, and he, this man, who became known as the Tattooed Man, was never identified. Shit. And, and his his death mask is still, um, I mean, like, the police department there in Cleveland still has it, but never identified. Shit. So one month later, July 1936, a teenage girl came across the decapitated remains of a 40-year-old white male while she's walking through the woods near Clifton Road and Big Creek, which is the west side. The victim had been dead about two months, and his head, as well as a pile of bloody clothing, was found nearby. So it's like this killer is not even trying to really hide these things. He's just doing it in areas where they're not found for a while, or maybe found immediately, and I I don't know. I will say one thing, and then I'll let you continue, because I know I've been interrupting. No, 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 you're good. But um, I wonder, because I would assume with, like, the tattooed man and just the unidentified victims that 
nowadays they have a DNA profile. And I wonder how long it'll be until something like, you know, how they found the Golden State Killer through familiar DNA, they'll finally be able to identify these victims as like, oh, this person submitted their DNA and they have a familial match to this person. Oh, it looks like they had a great-great uncle who was known to live in Cleveland who no one knows what happened to him. Oh my god, we've identified him. Or something. You know, that is a really interesting twist on the DNA that's happening because you're right. I feel like this could be used to solve Jane Doe and John Doe cases. And we haven't gotten to that point yet. But it should be. But I also don't know. Are there legal... I mean, I would assume... Are there legal reasons why you can't submit their DNA through something like that? There could be. I don't know. But I don't know why there would be. If they're... Like, I I don't know if it's something that you technically... You know, if there's just, like, a legal thing, it's like, oh, you need a person or their family's permission... Or they're like, you know, legal counsel's permission to submit their DNA. But that would be circular reasoning. So we don't because, have them. Yeah, exactly. You can't. That's the whole. But I, so everything. I don't. I don't know. Huh. But I mean, I'm sure there are nonprofits and police departments and law enforcement officers across the country Guaranteed. who have already made this connection and are working on identifying these people. And there might be loads of cases that are have already been solved that we just don't know about. Well, but. I feel like there is, I feel like we're at a very important opportunity now, and we're going to be seeing a lot of really wonderful things happening in the DNA space over the next few years, finally being able to give names and identities to all these unidentified victims. Absolutely, and you know how interested I am in the whole familial DNA and how it's being used in solving crimes nowadays. So I'm also very interested to see where we are in the next five to ten years, but also where we are in the next two. Um, Because advances happened so quickly. It's like mm -hmm. the second that that was discovered to be a means of uh, solving a crime, you know, with Bearbrook, and then that same person Mm -hmm. using it for Golden State Killer. And now we've had a series of cases where articles pop up like this was solved, this was solved, this was solved. And it's all linked to familial DNA. Like, yeah. I wonder, um, I will say, I bet a big part of it, unfortunately, is not that they can't do it. It's a they don't have the resources That's and money always to do the it. Reasoning. Because you can already, even before the familial DNA thing, we already had the technology and stuff that you can look at someone's DNA and someone's bones and be like, this person was in their mid-20s and grew up, you know, they have these these markers. So you can see that they grew up in West Virginia mm-hmm. And they grew up in a community with fluorinated water. And, like, you can look at that stuff and be able to pinpoint it down. But it takes so much money and so many resources Mm -hmm. that, unfortunately, not every unidentified victim gets the chance to be identified. But hopefully, as technology keeps moving forward, it becomes cheaper and more accessible. And something that, eventually, 50 years from now... 
My hope is that familial DNA is something that's like, for ages three and up, you're a take-home science kid. Find your familial DNA, or, you know, something like yeah. that that is so accessible that it becomes novelty almost. Yeah. Also, that gets into some scary, like, 1984 shit, but... It does, actually. We'll hope bit. that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. It's one of those things that it could go really scary or be something that's really helpful. And probably will wind up being just both. Well, and it's it's all in how we as humans decide to use the information. That's always... Which is why it'll probably be No, 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 I know, I know. But, like, that's one of the things when you think of technological advances as to if it's going to be for the good or for the demise, it's how we as humans use the information. It's it's what's terrifying. And it's why there's so many sci-fi movies that are actually way more real than we all like to admit uh, Mm -hmm. that are out there as entertainment because we want to ignore the fact that that could really fucking be reality. Uh, Yeah. So yeah. that took a weird turn. But that this body that was found in July 1936, there was a ton of blood that had seeped into the ground. And so it was determined that this man had been killed where his body was found. So this was a little mm. bit of a shift. So it wasn't a different mm-hmm. site. It was exactly where he was. So in September 1936, just a couple months later, a transia was walking around and tripped over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop on a train at East 37th Street in Kingsbury Run. Police ended up searching a nearby pool, which was honestly nothing more than a big open sewer at this point, and they found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs. Police sent a diver in to make a recovery. The number of onlookers that turned out to watch this grim spectacle unfold was estimated to be over 600 people, and of course the killer very well could have been one of them watching this happen yeah i would be surprised if they weren't this was victim uh number six who was in his late 20s and his cause of death was yet again decapitation coroner pierce noted that the lack of hesitation marks in the disarticulation of the body indicated a very strong and confident killer who was very familiar with human anatomy they knew what they were doing they were fully aware. And so when you were saying your line about the the butcher, you know, the meat cutter, knowing what he's doing, mm-hmm. it I was like, oh, shit, kind of same here. It was someone yeah. who was fully trained in how to dismember a body. And, and, like, even the head had been cut off in one clean stroke. So to our discussion we had earlier, it was instant death. Yeah. Well, I mean... It's one of those things that how instant is, you know, how long does it take for you to die? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't That's know. a big question. I assume it's like, just a couple seconds, but how... Yeah, but in that couple seconds, what type of pain are you feeling? Yeah. So this victim, unfortunately, was never identified. So six brutal killings happened within the span of 12 months, and the police had mm. no clues no suspects. None. The Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer were all reporting daily on the killings and the lack of a suspect. And so tensions were really growing high. You know, who the fuck is the Mad Butcher? Who is doing all these killings on Kingsbury Run? Yeah. So the police department put detectives Peter Mergulo and Martin Zalewski on the case full time. This is 
all they focused on. And shit. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they would sometimes even go. I get it. They would go undercover and dress like the people in the area and often did a lot of their investigation on their own time. And to be completely honest, as we've discussed, most of the times investigators like what is own time like that doesn't exist they're on the job 24 7 yeah because oh yeah you never know when that one little piece of information is going to be placed in front of you and it's well when you're going to get that call or when another case is going to come in and you're going to be like holy fuck no this is the same person or yeah, I, absolutely well, not even that you could be out in your personal life and something happens that makes you make a connection and so it's mm-hmm. they're literally on all the time so when i was doing my research and it was like they did a lot of this on their own time and i'm like no i mean like that no that's not a thing they, they don't, don't have, have own time. time let's just say i don't know i don't know if police officers are hourly or salaried but if they were hourly they would be making that overtime hmm. as they should pretty be. sure they're salaried because they don't make near <laughs> as much because, as they should no no i'm pretty sure they're salaried Probably that's one of the reasons. Hmm, probably. Which is shit, but... So, by the time this case had run its course, these two, you know, Peter and Martin, they had interviewed more than 1,500 people, and the department as a whole, Fuck. more than 5,000. And this was the Fuck. biggest investigation the police did in Cleveland history. At this time... Coroner Pierce, who had been the coroner on a lot of these cases prior, you know, the, the first six victims, he was replaced by a young Democrat, the now legendary Sam Gerber. And if he's so legendary, why have I never heard of him? Because he was in the 30s. How many people in the 30s have you heard of? <laughs> his fierce dedication to medicine, along with his degree in law, put him at the forefront of this investigation. Like he went headfirst right into the torso murders. Let's figure this out. February 1937, a man finds an upper half of a woman's torso that washed up on the shore east of Bratinol, and unlike the previous victims, the cause of death had not been decapitation. This time, the decapitation happened after she was already dead. The lower half of the torso washed up ashore three months later at East 30th Street, and it was determined this woman was in her mid-20s. Yet again, never identified. It's sad how many people, just across the world, but in this case in particular, are just unidentified. I know. And it's because they were, I mean, the way I'm seeing it is because it was people of a transient lifestyle that, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. they, the, that the fact not... that they, you haven't heard from them is not alarming. Exactly. It's not means for alarm. Yeah, not, not hearing from Shelly for a while doesn't mean we're thinking she's dead. It's because she's transient. Yeah, I mean, being absolutely. Shelly. And maybe she is dead, but maybe she overdosed. Like, you know. I know. Who knows? It's Shelly. Like, it's these people who are so easy to be victimized. Absolutely. Five months later, in June 1937, a teenage boy discovered a human skull under the Lorraine Carnage Bridge. And next to it, there was a burlap bag that contained the skeletal remains of what turned out to be a petite black woman, about 40 years old. Dental work did allow for unofficial identification of Rose Wallace, and police followed every lead they had on her, but it led them nowhere. Just a month later, July 1937, there were a few labor problems that had been happening in the flats that summer, and the National Guard had been called to maintain order in the area. 
A young guardsman was standing watch on West 3rd Street and saw the first piece. Uh, he's on like a bridge, the West 3rd Street mm-hmm. Bridge. And he saw a piece of victim number nine in the wake of a passing tugboat. So he just happens to see this come up. Because you, know, you know when a boat goes by and it has the weight? Yeah. Piece of body. <sighs> Over the next few days, police recovered the entire body, except for the head, from the waters of the Cuyahoga River. What made this discovery different is that the abdomen had been gutted and the heart was completely ripped out. What the fuck? So this was indicating a very new element. Yeah. This victim was in his mid-30s and never identified. So, fast forward ahead nearly a year to April 1938. A young laborer was on his way back to work in the flats and saw what he first thought was just like a dead fish along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. When he starts to get closer, he realized it was the lower half of a woman's leg and the first piece to be discovered of victim number 10. It always just reminds me of Kristen David from the Lewis Clark Valley serial killer case in the Colt Valley documentary where we interviewed Jackie and Gloria. Gloria. Absolutely. And it's just, they're very much not related, these two cases, but just the dismembering and the body parts washing up on the river or like being found on the riverside that that is the case that this is reminding me and of the, and it's horrifying the thing is when a body is disposed of in a river or a lake or the ocean it always eventually floats and comes ashore yeah. like that is not a means of disposal that is going to forever no. be hidden and you know again a lot of these were unidentified people and that that is what it is, but it's they were still found. Like those pieces were yeah. still found. So that's like literally not a good means of body disposal. Mm-hmm. There actually are none because I feel like everything eventually can be found out in the right no, amount of you'd time. You'd have to you'd have to like weigh down a body and go out into like off of the continental shelf of the ocean. To where the ocean's like thousands of feet deep and drop them. Because by the time that they would start floating up, the pressure would destroy them. Either crush them or keep them down. Like, I, f- I feel like that would be the only way. And then it would be like, hey, why did you drive 600 miles offshore? And by drive, I mean sail, because most cars can't drive or on the boat. ocean. Motorboat. Yeah, but you don't drive a motorboat. So. A month after the lower half of her leg was found, police pulled two burlap bags out of the river containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of both of her legs. For the first time, Coroner Gerber detected drugs in the system. But, like, the question remained, were these drugs used to immobilize the victim or was she an addict? And, you know, the answer would come if they found the arms, but they never did. Mm. Because you could see track marks if she was a needle user. Absolutely. And also it's the 30s, so heroin is like ibuprofen. Yeah, everyone's using it. I mean, it's it's one of those, you give your two-year-old cocaine when they have a toothache, because it's the 30s that just fucking... Drugs. I don't know if that was the 30s or like the 1910s and stuff, but similar era. Yeah. But, um, yeah, shit. And unfortunately, she was... Never identified. The the 
thing that is ending each of my people. Never identified. Never identified. Never, never identified. identified. No, there's only been, what, so far, like, two? Three. Potentially three. Three that have been identified. Fuck. So, August 16th, 1938, three scrap collectors were foraging around a dump site at East 9th and Lakeside and found the torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and then wrapped in an old quilt. The legs and arms were discovered in a recently constructed makeshift box thing and then wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands and the head was found wrapped very similarly. So this is an interesting shift because there's like all these layers of wrapping. Almost like it's like a gift or something. Like a super fucked up paper and clothes gift. So Coroner Gerber noted that some of the parts looked as if they had been refrigerated. So maybe this body was dismembered and kept for a little bit of time. And while they were searching for more pieces, the police discovered the remains of a second body only a few yards away. Oh my god. I will say, I feel like the refrigeration could be a huge clue. Because if all these victims are coming from this area that's not super wealthy people aren't owning refrigerators you know if a body's if the killer refrigerated the victim you know that narrows out a lot of people potentially that is true i mean i don't i don't know when commercial refrigerators became a thing but this could to the point narrow it down to someone with access to like a commercial refrigeration icebox or something i don't know i should have always been an investigator Both of these bodies had been placed in a location that was in plain view of Elliot Ness's office window, as if it was taunting him. And Elliot Ness... Because he's one of the main investigators. No, he was the safety director of Cleveland at the time. So it's like a statement shit. Yes, and both of these victims, 11 and 12, were never identified. So if you guys are listening closely, you probably picked up on my numbering and were like, wait, 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 you're one off. Well, that's because the very first victim that we discussed, the Lady of the Lake, that happened in 1934, she was determined to be a victim of the torso murderer two years after her death. So she was included in this official killing total and became known as victim zero. So you go zero Mm. to 12 and it's 13 total. Okay. So in all, 13 victims. And there are some people that don't necessarily believe that the Lady of the Lake was a part of the torso murders but from everything i looked up i super am she was yeah Uh, especially with the chemicals that were used on her and also one of the later victims yeah so august 18th 1938 at about 12 40 a.m elliot ness and a group of 35 police officers and detectives raided the hobo jungles of the run 11 squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks descended amongst the largest cluster of these makeshift shacks. The raiders worked their way south through the run, eventually gathering 63 men. And at dawn, all of the police and firemen were searching these deserted shanties for clues. And then, on the orders of safety director Ness... The shacks were then set on fire and burned to the ground. It's, the press they, severely criticized him for these actions. Good. They're acting like fucking medieval troops pillaging and 
burning well, towns. absolutely. And the public was, they were, they were afraid and they were really frustrated. And they said that this raid was not going to do anything to solve the murders. And they were right. But around the same time, the murders did stop. So in July 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer Frank Dolezal for the murders of Flo Pololi. She was the one who was the barmaid and sex worker. Yeah. And Frank had lived with her for a little while. And the subsequent investigation revealed that he had been acquainted with Edward Andrassi and Rose Wallace. So the three victims who were actually identified, Frank had been acquainted with all of them. Which, I'm gonna say, if they all still lived in the same community, yeah, that doesn't mean much. Yeah, it doesn't seem suspicious that the three that were identified have a connection to him. How many, if you were able to identify the other ones, how many of them would have a connection? Could it be all of them? But... I would imagine with the dismembering and stuff, it would have to come from someone who is a butcher or a doctor, someone with that not kind of experience. Not Yeah, not a bricklayer. Yeah. Well, his confession turned out to be this bewildering blend of incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details as if he'd been coached on this confession. Yeah, as if some of it's his words, and then a lot of it's the police's exactly. words. Before he could go to trial, he was found dead in his cell. He was only a five foot eight, but he had somehow figured out how to hang himself from a hook that was only five feet seven inches off the floor. So his autopsy did reveal he had six broken ribs, all of which had been obtained while he was in sheriff's custody. And this led the press and the general public to believe his confession was worthless because it obviously seemed like it had been obtained under physical force. It seems that it obtained under physical force, and I would not be surprised if the very people who elicited his confession were the ones who killed him. Absolutely. Um, I I do not believe that that, that it was a suicide? a suicide. Who knows? I mean, it, it could have been. But I don't, I don't know. But to this day, no one, no one really believes Frank was the torso killer. So later, Elliot Ness oversaw the pursuit of Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, who had served as a military doctor in World War I. And during his time in the war, he was in charge of conducting amputations of wounded soldiers. And mm, fuck. he later developed a mental illness, which... I mean, you fucking were in World War One. totally understanding this. Yeah. Police brought him in, and he failed a lie detector test. So Ness felt okay. that he was finally on the path to the killer, and he continued to press Sweeney. Unfortunately, Sweeney was related to U.S. Representative Martin Sweeney. Unfortunately for Ness, Sweeney was related to Martin Sweeney, and that complicated matters. Sweeney voluntarily committed himself to a mental institution, which placed him out of legal reach of Ness and his team. So if Ness had tried to pursue Sweeney any further, Sweeney had an insanity defense virtually locked in place. Like there was no, there was nowhere to really go with that. So, however, coincidentally, the Cleveland Torson murders appeared to stop after the doctor went into the mental hospital. So this was along the same yeah. time as 
the burning of Kingsbury Run. So, and he's someone with not only medical experience, but amputation experience. Yeah. Which is literally exactly what you would think someone would have who was doing these things. And with with such precise cuts. Yeah. I mean, again, we've talked about how today, how much of it, you know, people say like, oh, it had to be someone with medical experience. How much so? Yeah. You know, is it something that me watching Grey's Anatomy and looking shit up on the internet would be able to do that? versus, you know, no, these are clear surgical marks that you learn in medical school or whatever. Back then, you know, with the limited amount of, like, resources and information sharing, yeah, I can absolutely be like, no, butcher or medical person. Well, to this day, the Kingsbury Run murders remain one of the most perplexing cases in our nation's criminal history. Rumors abound of who could have been the killer, and it's very clear, Elliot Ness believed that Francis Sweeney was undoubtedly the killer, and Sweeney continued to taunt Ness throughout the years after the killing stopped. He would send him letters and postcards from the mental hospital, and despite the intense police work, there was never sufficient evidence to make a case against any other suspect, and... As it turns out, the inability to find the killer was the greatest failure of Elliot Ness. And one thing that I didn't mention about Elliot Ness is that he, at the time that he came to Cleveland, was extremely famous for his efforts to bring down Al Capone and enforce prohibition in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he was the leader of the famous team of law enforcement agents from Chicago that were nicknamed the Untouchables. So he was a big fucking deal. And coming to Cleveland and not being able to solve this is a part of what he's remembered for. And it's literally like he went from the top to the very bottom. In a way, it's both more sophisticated and less sophisticated than Al Capone. So I can... Fuck, I don't know. I don't know. Shit, okay. But to make matters even worse, all of the official police records on this case have been lost, destroyed, or removed. What the fuck? So that is the case of the Cleveland Torso Murders, also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Well, two things. Still, this case still remains unsolved to this day. First off, I remembered where I knew about this case from. I would say seven-eighths into your story, so about three minutes ago, was uh, I heard about it from BuzzFeed Unsolved. They had a video about it. Oh, really? I need to go watch that. And the second it was like, that I remembered it was BuzzFeed Unsolved, I was like, motherfucker, they never caught him, did they? Um, Also, the other thing I can say is the killings continued into 1938, right? Yes. Amelia Earhart disappeared in 1937. Oh my god, Tyler. I'm just saying, I'm just saying suspiciously close timelines okay i think it was amelia Earhart. you know i think that this was insanely horrific and the fact that so many of these victims died through decapitation like makes my stomach turn yeah no your your case is super fucked up Mm -hmm. um and the only thing is that i guess Thankfully, they stopped. The decapitation was quick. Oh yes, and, and the murders, the stopped. killings stopped. Yeah, like, eh. but okay, let's jump into postmortem. Yeah, definitely. What are your thoughts? You start. No, nope. nope, I said it first. No, you, start. you start. I don't know. I'm. T- I'll here. I'll talk my way through I'm it because torn. I have not actually yet 
decided. Yeah. Um, your case had a lot more victims and was brutal. My case, and is unsolved. Mm-hmm. My case involved less victims, but it did involve a child and the torture of multiple, multiple people by the police. Not even by the No, killer, by the police. By the police. Absolutely. And with someone being tortured for months and in jail for decades. For, they were 17. He was 17 when he went to jail and he was in jail for 66 years. Yeah, and didn't like it, do it. Like, at the, very, very most likely didn't do yeah, it. Yeah, like I, there's no part of me that thinks he did it. And yours was so brutal and so... Just the fucking burning of the town by the police. I know. Because, of course, that literally never would have happened if if all of these murders happened in a wealthy suburb. Absolutely. No, they're going to burn down the town because it's poor people. Which is... Uh, It's like they completely destroyed a community. They didn't find anything out of it. And yes, the... Killing stopped after that, but it was, again, around the same time that Sweeney went to the mental institution, so you really can't say which was which. Um, But I guess my one big thing is... Ours. I don't know. Fuck. Because, I know, I was about to say yours involved a victim that went through the whole prosecution, but mine also involved a victim who either committed suicide or was somehow murdered in his cell. And yeah. um, these are crazy. But I will say, yours involved a child. And though, you know, mine had more victims that were unidentified and terrific, I think I will pick the topic for next week because, yeah, child. I disagree, surprisingly. But not fully. Okay. I would vote Ty. Oh. Because I don't think you can compare the two. I don't remember what we do with Ty's, uh, since we now both pick we wine. We collaborate on a topic. I guess it's just we collaborate on the topic. Because I... I mean, if if you want to pick the topic, by all means, go ahead. But, um... Because, yeah, mine did involve a child. Okay, yeah. both of these but, sucked, and we're just gonna collaborate. Yeah. Yeah, let's just... Let's call this one a tie. I'm on board. <laughs> okay. Um... Shit. Well, with that, I have a glass of wine left. <laughs> I have a little bit. I'm going to go sit on my couch and hold Max very tightly and just... Like, not think about this. Try thing. not to think about murder. Um, but uh, while I do that, y'all um, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and, uh, you know, give us those five stars if you loved the episode, let us know what you like. Those ratings, they help us move up in the rankings. So the more ratings we get, the more likely we're appear we're able to appear on like the you may also like totally. this. So you'll be able to be a part of helping more people discover mine. discover episodes where we start out happy and sober and end really? up very sad and just yeah so be a part of that and while you're at it be sure to like and follow us on social we're on instagram facebook twitter and yeah just check it out we post content weekly do so. it all right well thank y'all so much for tuning in i'm gonna go sit and stare at a wall yeah seriously same um and with that This is Blood and Wine signing off. Bye, you guys. XOXO. Bye. Bye.